Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 309th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by ICD University Bookstore. Discover what's in store for you, and joining me this morning is my co-host, the very popular Dr. Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD. Good morning, Dr. Reamer. What's going on these days? You seem to be very busy. Uh, yep, yeah, I'm pretty busy right now and uh, getting ready for the next webinar. Good morning and welcome to everyone. Yeah, very good. So, uh, Dr. Reamer, let's begin with a subject that's certainly creating a lot of buzz, and of course that's OB coding. So what's the story here, Dr. Reamer? So, Chuck, I was co- contacted by a listener who participated in one of my OB webinars, and we're going to discuss her question next week. In preparation, I'm conducting a poll. So we're asking a question... How would you code a patient with end-stage renal disease who is 22 weeks pregnant? Here are your options. O, 26.832 pregnancy-related renal disease plus the N, 18.6 end-stage renal disease plus the weeks of gestation. Or O, 99.89, other specified diseases and conditions complicating pregnancy, childbirth, and the puerperium plus the other two codes. I have often wondered myself and can't wait to hear the correct answer next week. And I am so glad I don't ever have to code obstetrical conditions. As usual, please choose your answer, and we're going to review the results of this OB survey next week. Chuck? On today's Talk 10 Tuesday, Gloria Ann Bryant, past president of the California Health Information Association, returns with a Talk 10 Tuesday coding report. Gloria Ann's going to explain why coding and clinical documentation integrity are foundational for guidance and rules of health care. That's going to be very interesting. It sure is, and she's right. They are. Also on today's Talk 10 Tuesday, we'll have a report from Linda Benedetto. She'll report on coding chronic conditions. Linda is a revenue cycle and MIPS consultant at McKesson Specialty Health. Indeed she is. And speaking of chronic conditions, we asked Doug Siegel to discuss chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE. He's here to give us a report on why he and his foundation consider this to be a national epidemic that's hiding in plain sight, of course, at CTE. And that's a very timely topic, given that Super Bowl is coming up on Sunday, February 4th. Indeed it is. We have much to report this morning, and we begin at the Talk 10 Tuesday news desk, where Lori Johnson is standing by to report on CTE. The Talk 10 Tuesday news desk is sponsored by the ICD University Bookstore. Discover what's in store for you like the timely webcast by Dr. Erica Reamer on encephalopathy. Now available on demand at the ICD University Bookstore. Discover what's in store for you. Here now is Senior Healthcare Consultant Lori Johnson. This morning I'd like to talk to you about chronic traumatic encephalopathy. As, it's, as we've talked about, it's abbreviated as CTE, and what is new in that area. The latest news on CTE is that patients that have any repetitive hits to the head may bring on CTE. And the difference is that before we were told it had to be concussions. So there was a study that was published in the Brain Journal that provided some more insight to this repetitive 
hitting of the head uh, as something to be concerned about in bringing on CTE. We're also seeing more lawsuits filed regarding CTE. Two mothers in California have filed suit against the Pop Warner Little Scholars as they have lost two sons who had CTE because that was diagnosed after their son's death. In January 2016, I discussed on Talk 10 Tuesday the coding of CTE, which is F07.81, and the description is post-concussional syndrome. Note that this diagnosis falls in the mental health chapter, and the code is, is very vague for CTE. It is not even an inclusion term um, in the tabular. So fast forward to fiscal year 18, and there have been no changes in the code for CTE. This may be attributed to the fact that the diagnosis is made um, at death and not while the patient is living. Here are some symptoms that might be associated with CTE and I think are very important to capture so that we can further research the topic of CTE. We have post-traumatic headache, which is chronic and intractable at G44.321. Dizziness, which is coded as I'm sorry, R42. Blurred vision, coded at H53.8. Vision disturbance with regards to shape and size, H53.15. Diplopia, which is coded as H53.2. Confusion secondary to current head injury gets coded as S06.890A. And mild memory disturbance due to known physiological cause has two codes, F06.8 with F05. As we talked about, the Super Bowl is going to be played on on February 4th. Just think about the potential signs and symptoms these men may show in later years. A potential chronic condition that begins with repetitive hits on the head. That is what CTE is. So back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Laurie, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, Laurie Johnson. It is Tuesday. It's January the 23rd, 2018. The government's gone back to work. We've always been here. And you're listening to the 309th edition of Talk 10 Tuesdays. Stand by. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by the ICD University Bookstore. Discover what's in store for you. With tighter reimbursements and stepped-up compliance checks, clinical documentation integrity is more crucial than ever. So how do you ensure that CDI best practices are consistently followed in your facility? You can use the handbook, 2018 Essentials for Clinical Documentation Integrity. This exclusive ICD-10 Monitor Handbook is the ideal one-stop resource for training clinical documentation integrity specialists. It also serves as a great reference and refresher tool for the more experienced clinical documentation integrity specialist, CDIS. And the handbook is ideal for coding professionals who need a clearer understanding of documentation requirements. 2018 Essentials for Clinical Documentation Integrity. Order copies for your entire team at the ICD University Bookstore and discover what's in store for you. Now is the time for the Tucked In Tuesday Coding Report here now with the past president of the California Health Information Association, Glorianne Bryant. Good morning, Glorianne. Welcome to Tucked In Tuesday. 
Thank you, Chuck, and good morning to you and everyone and our panelists. It's great to be here. Well, when we think about clinical documentation and coding, we should be thinking about this as a foundation in our healthcare system, and especially in revenue cycle of healthcare. The patient medical record has important information, facts, figures that are put into terminology and language that then is translated into the ever important and even essential coded data. That translation process or function is what we fondly call and refer to as coding. In order to translate the clinical documentation into that coded data, many guidelines and rules must be followed without which the coded data will be compromised. Now, for over 25, 30 years, we've seen the need and importance of clinical documentation and coding greatly increase. It's truly does not matter if the clinical documentation and coding is diagnosis coding, procedure coding, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, long-term care SNF, whether it's a private, public, or government payer. The importance is still there. We must protect the accuracy and integrity of this foundational aspect of our healthcare system. The impact of the coded data is far-reaching. I think you'll all agree. Certainly, there are some important resources to utilize in our clinical documentation coding efforts. And I like to utilize the following at, at a minimum the official coding and reporting guidelines, of course, for the appropriate year, the AHA coding clinic on ICD-10 CM and PCS, and I even use the AHA coding clinic on HICPICS for the outpatient settings, and then the AHIMA standards of ethical coding, the AHIMA ethical standards for clinical documentation improvement, AHIMA practice brief, guidelines for achieving an effective query practice, the AHIMA clinical documentation improvement toolkit, that was back in 2016, the AMA CPT assistant, the ACTUS Code of Ethics, even the OIG compliance program guidance I like to use, and the OIG measuring compliance program effectiveness resource guide is also a great tool. Now with that list, and certainly these are ones that we all should be considering, we still have pressure to achieve and obtain more and more. Thus, when it comes to foundational clinical documentation and coding, healthcare compliance and ethics is included in that list of tools that I mentioned. Now, our efforts today and in the future, they need to focus on the clinical documentation coding so it is a true reflection or a picture of the patient care that is or was provided. It is truly and trustfully the patient's story for each and every encounter that we must represent, not simply the words or the codes that pay. We must remember at all times and not lose sight of the broad impact of clinical documentation and coding that it has on the patient and healthcare as a whole. Whether you are an AHEMA, ACTUS, APC, AMA, AHA, HCCA, HFMA, or even MGMA professional, we cannot, and I emphasize not neglect, the ethical responsibility we have for the foundation of coded data. That coded data that we assist in building, validating, maintaining, and supporting today and in the future. 
Thank you, Glorianne. That was the past president of the California Health Information Association, Glorianne Bryant. By the way, you can read Glorianne's excellent article. It's in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. Thanks very much. Our lead story this morning is the coding and documenting of chronic conditions. Here now to report our top story is Revenue Cycle and MIPS consultant for McKesson Specialty Health, Linda D. Benedetto. Good morning, Linda, and welcome to Talk 10 Tuesday. Linda, when we're talking about coding chronic conditions, this, of course, brings us to the subject of HCCs, right? Yes. There has been a lot of interest these days in the reporting of the hierarchical condition categories, or HCCs as we call them. The HCC codes were developed by CMS for the Medicare Advantage payment model. The CMS HCC Medicare Advantage model is a reimbursement framework designed to give weight or value to chronic conditions in order to make payments for their enrollees with differences in expected cost of care. Capturing these chronic patient conditions is fast becoming the driving force for determining healthcare outcomes and costs under value-based care payment models. The HCC codes, or King codes, I call them, identify the complexity of a patient's present chronic condition, such as diabetes, hypertension, and cancer, along with other demographics, such as age, sex, and Medicaid status. And it links these chronic conditions to a risk adjustment factor. The risk adjustment factor is a statistical tool and it predicts speculated healthcare costs by the reported ICD-10 HCC diagnosis codes. These patients with chronic conditions are given a risk score based on complexity, which identifies a patient population that may need disease management intervention, high-cost drugs, costly treatments, and possible hospital admissions. The recent shift from volume to value has created increased need for providers to implement a comprehensive document and coding strategy. Documenting coding HCCs yearly ensures proper reimbursement for patients with complex conditions. However, they are now critical under the macro quality payment program. HCC codes are the only way that eligible clinicians will get credit for higher cost of care on their attributed patients in the MIPS resource use cost category and avoid a potential yearly negative payment adjustment. By performance year 2019, the cost category will account for 30% of the clinician's MIPS total composite score. And also, MIPS-eligible clinicians can receive up to five bonus points for reporting HCCs to CMS. Whatever the model, proper coding plays a vital role in enhancing the triple aim of providing better care, improving population health management, and reducing healthcare costs. Providers need to understand the MEAT of HCC coding, literally MEAT. M-E-A-T is an acronym used in HCC to ensure the most accurate and complete information is being documented. MEAT stands for monitoring, signs, symptoms, and the disease process. Evaluate, test results, meds, patient response to treatment. Assess, ordering tests patient education, reviewing records, and counseling patient and family members, and treat through meds, therapies, procedures, and modalities. It becomes the coder's responsibility to ensure medical coding is accurate and all reported chronic conditions are supported in the documentation. 
So it's essential that practices have policies and efficient processes in place to support the providers in properly documenting chronic conditions. And lastly, staff should refer to Medicare's website regularly to stay current with the latest guidelines for appropriate coding of HCCs. Thanks, Linda. That was Revenue Cycle and MIPS consultant for McKesson Specialty Health, Linda D. Benedetto. Chuck? Thank you, Dr. Reamer and Linda. Thanks very much for being with us today. I hope you'll come back and join us for another edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. ICD-10 Monitor was the first to report that there was a nonspecific ICD-10 for CTE, thanks to the intrepid reporting of Lori Johnson. Yet today, CTE is an epidemic. It's hiding in plain sight, according to our next guest. And our next guest is the co-founder of the Patrick Risha CTE Awareness Foundation, Doug Ziegel. Good morning, Doug. Welcome to Talk to Tuesday. So what's the extent of CTE? And tell us briefly about the Patrick Risha CTE Foundation. Thank you, Chuck, and good morning. Uh, we're, we're calling from Philadelphia area, and this is Eagles country, so we're on the road to victory in a Super Bowl on February 4th, so this is maybe not a great time to speak about brain injury in sports, but we'll, we'll do the best we can. The Patrick Grisha CTE Awareness Foundation, uh, our mission is to create awareness of this horrific disease, its cause, the magnitude, and emphasize the fact that it's 100% preventable. We believe, as you said, Chuck, that CTE is an epidemic hidden in plain sight. We don't see it primarily because we haven't been looking for it. But now we are, and the researchers are alarmed by what they're seeing. As Lori Johnson reported, CTE is caused by repetitive blows to the head. These repetitive blows to the head cause tau protein in the brain to misfold, and similar to cancer, it grows and chokes off areas of the brain. This cascades as tau misfolds and cannot be stopped. Symptoms include, and, and these are additional symptoms, anxiety, depression, explosive anger, impaired judgment, paranoia, suicidal thoughts and actions, confusion, and addictive behavior. Kind of sounds like our federal government, Chuck. There, there's three main reasons why it hasn't been looked for, and it's so hard to see. First, CTE is so new that most of the medical community is not yet prepared to clinically diagnose it. We rely on specialized testing of brain tissue post-mortem for definitive diagnosis. Second, CTE is so slow to develop that by the time the symptoms emerge years or decades later, most people don't link it back to its initial cause. And finally, the industries which benefit from activities which kind of require blows to the head certainly do not want CTE to be recognized or, and are working very hard that it isn't. In this case, an example might be the National Football League, National Hockey League, and I dare say the NCAA. So what is causing this epidemic? Any activity that causes multiple hits to the head, like football, heading in soccer, rugby, hockey, boxing, wrestling, rodeo, motorsports, stunt doubles, sadly the military. You, not, you do not need a concussion to develop CTE. And now we're just realizing that we're beating up our soldiers' brains trying to turn them into soldiers. Heavy weapons training, blasting and breaching, and certain types of combat training injure soldiers' brains before they're sent out to war, and then off to war they go. So here's our perspective, Chuck, on the magnitude of this epidemic. And the bottom line, Dr. Reamer and Chuck, is that the sky is falling. 
We have over 5 million children with fragile brains playing collision sports in this country. The Mayo Clinic did a study in their brain bank of over 2,000 brains and found the incidence of CTE in amateur athletes to be approximately 33%. In non-athletes, they found zero. Suicides are exploding in this country, and there are more suicides than homicides by a factor of two to one. The opioid crisis may be in part attributable to CTE, where pain relief and and addictive tendencies run hand in hand. And how many of our homeless are brain damage veterans or ex-athletes who just happen to pick the wrong sport to play? And when we see irrational crimes like death by cop, those incidences could be investigated for physical brain damage as well if we choose to do so. And now that I've thoroughly depressed you, the good news in all of this is that CTE is 100% preventable. Uh, We have much left to do, but in the meantime, it's very encouraging to know that this epidemic is getting a code, and we pray that it's used less in the future. Dr. Reamer? Thank you, Doug. That was excellent. That was the co-founder of the Patrick Risha CTE Foundation, Douglas Ziegel. Chuck? Thank you, Dr. Reamer, and Doug, thanks very much. It was uh, great to have you on the program, and best wishes to you and your wife for the great work that you're doing for the Foundation. Now it's time for our very popular segment here on Talk 10 Tuesday called Talk Back, and once again, here is Dr. Erica Reamer. There's a coding clinical disconnect for the concept of chronic conditions. All clinicians have interviewed a patient who denies any past medical history, but when confronted with their med list, they admit to high blood pressure and high cholesterol. If controlled, the patients just don't think of those conditions as being chronic. When I teach providers, I use this example. History of congestive heart failure means the patient used to have heart failure but has since undergone a heart transplant and no longer has it. If the patient is on meds chronically, he or she has chronic congestive heart failure. Listing a condition in the past medical history isn't intended to relegate a condition to history of for a clinician. Up until now, we have not really been attentive to most chronic conditions if they are not risk-adjusting in the DRG arena. Hierarchical condition categories, or HCCs, have thrown a twist into this system. Chronic conditions can be resource-intensive, so they may have an impact on the population health risk adjustment model when they have none on the inpatient model. 40% of HCCs are neither CCs nor MCCs. I always advocate for as much specificity as possible because I believe that fully conveys the complexity and severity of the patient. However, there are conditions which are HCCs without specificity, for instance, atrial fibrillation. Although persistent AFib is the only CC, any type of atrial fib is in the HCC 96 specified heart arrhythmias. But which conditions do I see providers giving limited details in their documentation leading to suboptimal specificity in codes, which makes a difference? Let me give you a few examples. Diabetes is a three-tiered HCC set with acute complications, with chronic complications, and without complications. I suspect the most common diagnosis which is left on the table is anything 065 
type-specific diabetes mellitus with hyperglycemia. The providers just give the verbiage of diabetes, but there is persistently elevated glucose in the labs. Get them to add the with hyperglycemia qualifier. Talk about low-hanging fruit. Next, atherosclerosis. Although I-73.9, peripheral vascular disease unspecified, lives in HCC 108, if what you really have is a patient with atherosclerosis of a leg with ulceration, you should really be in the HCC 106, which, according to the hierarchy, should yield a risk adjustment factor of 1.461 instead of 0.298. The provider should give the specificity of vessel and the linkage of symptoms or sequelae like claudication, rest pain, ulceration, or gangrene. My last pearl is this. Most traumatic injuries, which are HCCs, are for the initial encounter, which means that after the year in which the definitive therapy is undertaken is over, the condition should drop off. However, sequelae of major head trauma and skull fractures are also nestled in HCC-167, major head injury. So if a patient has some persistent neurological condition as the result of a previous head injury, capturing the S code with the seventh character of S can pick up the 0.191 risk adjustment factor. We must continually promote clinicians giving maximal specificity for all diagnoses to include acuity and linkage. As I always say, we want the patient to look as sick in the medical record as he does in real life. Chuck? Thank you very much, Dr. Rooney, for that great talkback segment. By the way, Dr. Rooney, we've got a couple of related questions that have come in. Could you uh, take a couple of moments to answer questions from Linda and Angela? I hope so. I see one that says, when coding CHF, can coders assume the CHF is chronic because the patient has had it, or does the physician need to specifically document it as chronic in order to code it as such? As always, you really have to go on the physician's documentation, and since you can't really um, look at any previous encounters, you can only use what's in this current encounter. So the physician really needs to say chronic heart failure for you to be able to pick up chronic heart failure. Best practice is to get both the acuity, so either acute on chronic and chronic, and the type so systolic, diastolic, or combined systolic, diastolic, to get the maximal specificity and get the most precise code. The question Marie asked was, does chronic CHF have to be documented by the physician or can you code chronic if the patient is on meds for the condition? So again, um, you, you, know, you really can't make an assumption that it, you know, if, the, if the doctor says heart failure, you really need to make sure that you get them to give you the acuity what having the medications for the condition does for you is as a clinical documentation integrity specialist or coder, it should clue you in that the patient has a chronic condition, and then you should be able to go and get the specificity for it. If the physician were to say uh, compensated, that equals to chronic. In fact, why don't we pull Lori Johnson, why don't you pipe in verbally and give us anything else that you have to say about that? I was just adding to the conversation that there is a coding clinic that addresses using the words compensated and decompensated with regards to heart failure. And compensated will equate to chronic as well as decompensated 
um, equates to acute. Right, acute decompensated, I believe, right. would really imply acute on chronic because... Yes, you're exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Let's see. Do we have any other questions we're going to do here? Let's see. You, there's a coding clinic that says you can code chronic CHF if the patient has a history of CHF. Uh, I'm going to have to check on which coding clinic that is so that I can refer you guys to that one if that's accurate. And I guess the question is, you know, to me, I believe one of the most important things that you have to wonder about is if the doctor has it as past medical history, that's one thing. But if they if they have it in a medical list that's the past history that your um, institution does not code from, then I don't believe that you can actually pull it out. That would be the point at which you'd really need the doctor to tell you. Yeah, very good, Dr. Reamer. Thanks very much. By the way, Dr. Reamer is a prolific writer, and you can read all her excellent articles in the news section of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. That's going to be it for us, and Dr. Reamer and I want to thank our guests today, Gloria and Brian, Linda D. Benedetto, Lori Johnson. Again, Lori, thanks for being with us today. And Doug Zigo, co-founder of the Patrick Risa CTE Awareness Foundation. Thanks, Doug. Be with us next Tuesday when Dr. Erica Reamer reveals the results of today's Top 10 Tuesday listener survey. Also joining the program will be Linda Holtzman and Top 10 Tuesday political analyst Rhonda Bocals will report live from Washington, D.C. on all the regulatory changes taking place in light of the recent government shutdown. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, and on behalf of Dr. Erica Reamer and everyone here at Top 10 Tuesday, we thank you for being with us, and we look forward to your being right back here again next Tuesday for another edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.